0: I'd ask if you turn in your Bibles at this time to Mark chapter 7. Our scripture reading is going to be from verses 24 to 37. We continue looking at uh, Mark's narrative of the gospel story of Jesus, uh, remembering that um, as a gospel writer, Mark is particularly presenting the Apostle Peter's perspective. Uh, that comes to us from uh, early evidence in church history. Uh, we know that Mark writes from the city of Rome. Uh, we know that Peter is there. And uh, so we're getting often vivid descriptions of situations, particularly minute details within stories that could only come from an eyewitness. And so these things are, are clear in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're often getting... Peter's perspective. It will be pertinent as we go through this passage this morning. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37, reading from the English Standard Version translation. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. And came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. In the region of the Decapolis, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, "Ephetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and He spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more He charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we would ask that you would open up our ears to clearly hear what you would say to us out of these two stories in Scripture. And our prayer would be not that I, as the preacher, and somehow, in some way, would be teaching this congregation. But truly, Father, whenever someone opens up the Word of God, you are the teacher. And so, Lord God, we pray that I would be a channel of your word and not a hindrance. That the words that uh, I would say, uh, you would so work in them and through them that they would be truth, the truth of Scripture in such a way that we all would be built up in our faith and in such a way that we would understand how it is that you have loved us and cared for us and brought us to yourself and how you also desire to use us in the work of the gospel and the kingdom to introduce your son to others. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now one of the themes which we have have looked at as we have been working our way through the gospel of, of Mark here, one of the themes is clearly the extraordinary power of Jesus to save and to rescue people out of extraordinarily Difficult situations. Uh, Think of the time when Jesus and his disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee after an exhausting day of ministry, and Jesus falls asleep. He is so exhausted, he is in such a state of sleep, that a storm comes up, the wind is blowing, the sea is raging, uh, water is actually getting into the boat, the boat is near capsizing, these very experienced uh, uh, fishermen and sailors are fearful that they're going to die. And they wake him up and say, carest thou not that we perish? I think that's a throwback to the King James. (laughs) And, 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 And Jesus says, O ye of little faith to them. And he commands the wind to stop and the sea to abate. And they're perfectly safe. But they're delivered out of an extraordinarily dangerous situation. And in that same uh, story sequence, they land in the Gadarene area. Actually, it's, it's in the same region of the ten cities, the Decapolis. And there they're met by a demoniac who has a legion of demons. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of demons possess this man. And Jesus delivers him delivers him from such supernatural power, such extraordinarily difficult circumstances, the man certainly could not have helped himself at all. Now, in, in these two stories, we have Jesus rescuing his disciples, first of all, who have only a little faith, and then there's demoniac who had no faith at all to begin with by virtue of his sovereign power. And then we find there are other stories where Jesus rescues people where faith is clearly part of the picture, but it's not the faith of the person who's rescued. When we think back to the earlier part of Mark chapter 2, we have a, a wonderful story where Jesus is teaching the house is filled with people, and four men bring their friend who is a paralytic and lower him down through the roof so that he might be healed. And in Mark chapter 2, the statement is so very clear. It says, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. We also think about a circumstance where uh, after the episode of the demoniac, when Jesus is back near Capernaum, and there's Jairus, whose 12-year-old daughter is on the verge of death. And while Jesus is making his way to the house of Jairus to meet that father's great need, he gets stopped. He gets interrupted. He heals a woman who has suffered for many, many years. And in in, in pausing and waiting and in doing that, the daughter dies. And Jairus, of course, is, is broken by this. Doubtless. But Jesus says to him, just believe. And then he raises the little girl from the dead. So there we see circumstances where where Jesus is responding to not the faith of the one that he helps, but the faith of those who seek out Jesus to help that person. Jesus responding to the faith of others. Now, that's what we're going to find in the two stories we're going to look at today. It is very, very significant. Both of these stories demonstrate Jesus helping helpless people who cannot help themselves. But Jesus acts to save, acts to help on behalf of the prayerful and faithful concern of others. And there's a very important lesson here. It's an important lesson for us as Christians to understand something of our purpose in this world and in this life. That is to say, we need to look upon hopeless cases. We need to look upon helpless cases of people that we know, loved ones, friends, even children, grown children, who are in some sense deep strangers to the grace of God and we must Come to Jesus in faith on their behalf, seeking Jesus to save them. Now, before we move on to a closer examination of these two stories where where these lessons are strong and apparent and evident, I want us to appreciate something of the historical context of these two stories and also something of the theological and even topical context For instance, in the early part of of Mark chapter 7, Jesus is dealing with that whole episode where the disciples don't wash their hands before they go to eat. So we have the unwashed hands episode that's connected with statements about food that was considered to be unclean. And, And in that story, Mark makes the parenthetical remark, and thus Jesus declared all foods to be clean. Now, you think about that, that Jesus is is declaring all foods to be clean by virtue of what he's doing there. And we come to these two stories that happen right afterwards, where Jesus is ministering to unclean people. The woman is Syrophoenician. She's a Gentile. The man who is healed of his, his muteness and his deafness lives in the... De- de- <laughs> Well, I I can say Annapolis, but I can't say Decapolis. (laughs) Uh, And the Decapolis area, which is a federation of ten cities that are essentially Hellenized, essentially Gentile, they're not Jewish cities, and the population there is essentially not a Jewish population. So there is Jesus ministering in two locations where he's specifically going to do things on behalf of those who are Gentiles, unclean people. And so when you have these two stories together, first, Jesus declaring, in principle, all food unclean to be clean, now ministering to people who are, according to Jewish understanding, unclean, and yet he's ministering to them. And you remember that this is Mark's gospel, really Peter's gospel. Then you think how this connects with Peter's own experience. Why did Peter want these stories connected this way in Mark's narrative? to reinforce what he himself experienced in Acts chapter 10. Uh, Peter is such a zealous Jew that even though he has heard that the gospel is for all nations and all peoples, yet it takes an extraordinary experience in his life for, for him to be convinced that this barrier between Jew and Gentile actually should be bridged, actually should be crossed. And so we read the story in Acts chapter 10 where he's Uh, One afternoon up on the roof, he's in prayer, and he falls into a trance, and this sheet is lowered from heaven, and it has all sorts of unclean animals, and the command is, rise Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's response is, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean in all of my life. It happens three times. Anytime something happens three times in scripture, it's to emphasize the message very, very strongly. And then right away there's at the door messengers from the Roman Gentile centurion Cornelius who have been told that they need to come and find Peter who will come and explain the way of the gospel to them. And so Peter goes to the household of Cornelius and preaches the gospel and there is a kind of Gentile Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And out of that lesson, Peter then goes to the rest of his Jewish brethren, he says, I now know that God makes no distinction among peoples, that it's not for us with respect to the gospel to call any people unclean. So all of that tells us why this is such a significant passage in the gospel of Mark, and why in Mark's narrative of all the different things he could have presented, he connects the uncleanness of food with the uncleanness of people showing that Jesus has declared all foods to be clean, and now Jesus, by his ministry, is declaring all people to be clean. That is to say, the barrier between Jew and Gentile must be broken down as the gospel gospel goes forward. That's background. It's important. It's significant. It helps us to get a sense of the significance of what Jesus is doing here. But now we move on, then, to these two stories. The first story is a story about a helpless child and her mother. And then the second story is going to be about a helpless man and his friends. And both stories are united around the idea that the helplessness is something which the child can't solve, the man can't solve, and the friends and the mother go to Jesus And the response of Jesus is essentially to their faith. So let's look at this. Verses 24 through 30. In that passage, we read there that as soon as Jesus shows up in the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he's in a house, a lot of details are left unspecified, but he's there in a house, and he wants to remain, as it were, incognito. Now the reason for this, expositors basically will say something like this. Look, Jesus has been harried almost every place he goes. Time with his disciples is now getting very, very important because he's got to concentrate on them in the last year of his ministry because they're going to carry on after he is crucified, dead, risen, and ascended to heaven. And so he tries to find this place of, of a more private area, an area that he can be with them uh, more in a concentrated fashion. So he goes to the very borders of Israel, but even there he's being recognized. The woman comes immediately to Jesus. And the impression is is that as soon as she heard this man is in town, she comes. She comes right away. She wastes no time on behalf of her daughter. Now, let's look at why she comes. There's There's things very, very significant about this child. The first, of course, is that she has an unclean spirit. And there are three ways in which unclean spirits are spoken of in Scripture, as an unclean spirit, an evil spirit, and a demon. And the passage here makes it very clear. This little girl is demon-possessed. Now, recognize she's just a little girl because the lady refers to her in that way. And she's demon-possessed. Clearly, the inference is, if we step back and look at it, This child is not a child who became demon-possessed because she dabbled in the occult. In fact, we don't even have anything in the passage that encourages us to speculate how did she become possessed by the demon. It's just a stated fact and a stated reality. Now, theologically, when we step back and consider what what the Scripture says, what that tells us, this little girl is demon-possessed. It's not her fault. Well, it shows us how deeply fallen the world is. It also shows how great the power of the evil one is over this world. It shows the power of Satan to capture people and to hold them captive to his spiritual darkness. It shows that all people outside of Christ are vulnerable to this darkness, even little children. This little girl is but a vivid example of what Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses where he was written, where he has written to the Ephesians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The point is this. Children are not born into this world in a state of innocence. We are all born into a state of fallenness. We are all born with original sin. And the devil begins his malicious work upon that fallen nature, even among small children. Second thing, though, in terms of the reality of the spiritual condition of this child, we have to recognize this child could not seek help on her own. In the first place, She didn't even live near enough to where Jesus was primarily ministering to try to seek Jesus out to hear about Jesus. But she's also a little daughter. She's even much too young to be seeking Jesus on her own and probably too young to have really understood what Jesus was all about. But the worst part is this. Her body and soul were in captivity to an evil spirit. This spirit would be working in her to keep her from seeing God from seeing His grace, and from recognizing in Jesus God's only Redeemer. So I want you to appreciate the the hopelessness and the helplessness of this child's condition, which honestly is reflective of every person's condition who is outside the sphere of God's saving grace. And I want us to understand the impact of this upon how certain Christians will talk in a very loose fashion about, quote, free will, unquote. Because I have to ask you to think about this. The child, possessed first by a fallen nature, secondly, possessed by an evil spirit, I want you to ask, where would you find in her a, quote, free will to choose and respond to Jesus on her own? we already know from Scripture that she is dead in her trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. But further, Paul says that the gospel is veiled to unbelievers because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ. So it it isn't possible at all that this little girl on her own would ever be seeking salvation, to ever seek help spiritually, to ever seek Jesus, based on the actual conditions of her spiritual helplessness. And that's the reality of her spiritual state of affairs. So the story then is really about the mother's faith and how her mother sought Jesus on behalf of of her helpless daughter. It's really about the remarkable perseverance of this mother's faith. Mark shows us that this perseverance goes up against an incredible obstacle that Jesus lays in front of her. When the woman appeals to Jesus... He responds in a way that has troubled many people. I hope that you will see that it's not designed to trouble us. Jesus never does anything without the wisest and the most gracious end point in mind. The appearance is not the reality. Appreciate that as we look at what happens here. What is Jesus, how does Jesus respond to her, her, her desire to have the daughter helped? He stresses to a Gentile that his mission in ministry has a priority to the sons of Israel, to the Jews to the chosen people of God. He says this in the strongest terms, verse 27, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Now, he uses the term children, a very nice term, to refer to the Jews, the not-so-nice term dogs to refer to the Gentiles. And Jesus is saying that his ministry is the bread for the children, The children of Israel, that is his first priority. So it isn't right for him to throw this bread to the dogs who are the non-Jews. Now there's some softening of the language here because we recognize that the word dogs here is the diminutive, which means puppies or house dogs. It's not the dogs referred to normally that were the street dogs and the scavengers. So there's a little softening here. But nevertheless, this is a rebuke on the part of Jesus even if it is delivered in something of a mild way. But then I want you to consider, in the face of that, the mother's whole approach and response. She comes to Jesus in the manner of begging. She doesn't presume she has any right to Jesus. She, she doesn't presume that she has that her daughter has any rights to Jesus. Now, I I will say something else. It, It ought to trouble all of us when we hear people say, respect to God's work in the world. Everybody has a right to hear the gospel. That is so fundamentally wrong. Nobody has a claim by rights on the gospel. Nobody has a claim by some natural rights on God's mercy. No one. We all must recognize what this woman recognized, that you come to Jesus as a beggar. You don't come with your legal rights. You don't come with your natural rights. By natural rights, all of us have one claim upon God, justice, And that justice has already condemned us to hell forever. The posture of this woman before Jesus is the only posture that ever leads to salvation. There's no one who is saved who does not come as a beggar before God having no rights at all. None at all. There's also, out of this humility, an amazing recognition of who Jesus is. She calls him Lord. Now, it's interesting because she is the first time somebody really recognizes in the the Gospel of Mark, this is the first time this word is used to address Jesus. Now, Jesus has used it of himself, For he said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. But this is the first time someone else looks at Jesus and says, Lord, in the highest sense of what that word means. And then she has this amazing response to what Jesus has said to her. Verse 28. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She accepts the rebuke. She knows she has no basic right to ask. But her faith is quick to seize on the words of Jesus this extraordinary spiritual application that although she and her daughter have no standing with respect to the election of Israel, they they are not part of God's chosen people, although she and her daughter have no direct right to what the children of Abraham have a right to, Yet she hears this, the children are fed first. And she infers that there might be a second feeding for the dogs. And so she believed that God's grace could spill over off the table of Israel and fall to her as a Gentile and to her daughter, even as crumbs spill off the table for the puppy dogs underneath. This is a persistent faith. She does not let go. And this is what Jesus honors. He says in verse 29, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. In other words, because of what this statement means, because it is such a demonstration of a persevering faith that will not be denied the grace that that it is seeking, you have what you ask for. Your daughter is free of this demonic spirit. Now, Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this passage, really gives us the application that we all should follow, especially, especially as parents. And it doesn't matter what age we are as parents. But listen to this. The greatest blessing we can ask of Christ for our children is that he would break the power of Satan that is the power of sin in their souls, and particularly that he would cast forth the unclean spirit, that they may be temples of the Holy Ghost, and he may dwell in them. We are encouraged to pray for our children when they're very, very small and cannot pray for themselves. And we are encouraged to pray for our children when, sadly, they could be praying for themselves, but they're not. We are encouraged to recognize that Jesus responds to the faith of those who are praying for others who will not or cannot pray for themselves. Many of us have family members, even children, who we know do not love Jesus. Are you not encouraged? Are you not encouraged by the story? Does this not encourage you? that Jesus was willing to go to a Gentile woman who had no claim at all, who, who had a heart for her daughter, spiritually in bondage. And she persevered in her faith in bringing this child before the Lord. that I have my story, a grown daughter, Nick's cousin, totally walked away from the faith during her teenage years. Some of you have grown children who walked away as young adults. This passage convicted me this week that I don't pray enough this passage encouraged me that Jesus has never stopped hearing my prayers. This passage said to me, never stop persevering in prayer for someone who will not pray for herself. I have another sermon already in my notes here, and so we have to stop. But I want us to just wrap this up this morning. We'll get into the next part in two weeks. I want us to realize again what we said at the beginning of the service, what we said even when, when, when Carrie shared about Cherokee's mom. There are people we know. There are people we love. There are family members who do not pray, who do not know what Jesus can do for them. We can do something about that. If at no other place than at the throne of grace. And that's the lesson of the story. Therefore, let us all be encouraged that Jesus hears our prayers. Let us ever persevere in faith for those we love. Father, help us. Help us to believe your word. Help us to believe in the greatness and goodness of Jesus. Help us to remember again and again that Jesus came into this world to seek and to save those who are lost. You saved us. You can save anyone. Give us the faith to believe that the people we love, that you want us to be praying for them, even as they can't pray for themselves, that you will respond to our faith. We pray, Lord. Encourage us. Teach us this. Keep us understanding this and practicing this all to the glory of God. Of Jesus, we pray in His name. Amen.